We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips, we have trainings, exercise, we do research, and in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts, and also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations, since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Welcome, everyone, to the 45th episode of our Rock Art Podcast. This is uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel interviewing Sandy Rogers, uh, luminary in the fields of rock art and in Obsidian Dating. Enjoy. Hey, out there in uh, archaeology podcast land, this is uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, and this is episode 45 of your Rock Art Podcast. And we are honored and blessed to have a remarkable individual, Sandy Rogers, Alexander Rogers. Sandy has been uh, a influential and prestigious scholar in a number of different fields. One is on rock art, and, but another certainly is relating to his uh, archaeological studies that uh, integrate his scientific emphasis on the dating of obsidian in an archaeological context. And as well, he's uh, a remarkable individual in the sense that he has uh, two master's degrees, one in archaeology and one in physics, and is a, an absolutely brilliant researcher. He has published literally dozens of articles in major scientific journals that have been peer-reviewed and are very well-received. Sandy Rogers, are you there? Yes, I am. Hello, Alan. Well, it's a blessing to have you, and I know we've tried to do this for a while, and uh, we're both geographically in the wonderful state of Oregon, are you? Right. Yeah. What, ta what uh, takes you to Oregon in this interesting benchmark in your life? Well, we decided to move here about a year and a half ago to be closer to uh, children and grandchildren. That was a primary reason. And so we are here now in Hillsboro. Two of our sons and, and their families are nearby. Whereabouts is Hillsboro in Oregon? Hillsboro is on the west side of Portland. I see. Uh, probably about a dozen miles west. It is a big time Intel Corporation country uh, out there. Uh, so you were formerly living, I believe, in Ridgecrest for 
certainly a portion of your life, weren't you? Yes. So as a matter of fact, for most of it, I first went there in 1949 in the first grade, my parents. After I got my master's in physics, I went to work there at the, uh, it was then called the Naval Weapons Center, uh, China Lake. It's a Navy laboratory. And I, I worked there for most of my career, then a, a year in the Pentagon, and uh, five years, I guess it was, at Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory. Uh, but most of my career was at, um, at China Lake, uh, which um, is a wonderful place to work if you're a, a scientist or engineer. It also happens to be where the Coso rock art is located. So let's have, let's have, let's have a thumbnail of, for those who may not know, uh, where where is Ridgecrest? What is China Lake? And okay, uh, China Lake is a is a Navy base in the eastern California part of the Mojave Desert, Upper Mojave Desert. It's a huge base, about seventeen hundred square miles. Uh, it's a laboratory and and test range for the Navy, naval aviation. So in that seventeen hundred square miles, there is a large amount of archaeology and rock art. Uh, which is, uh, has been identified as being protected. Uh, the town of Ridgecrest is just to the southwest of uh, China Lake and is a, the, a basic bedroom community of about um, uh, 30,000 people. And it's where everybody who works on the base lives. Uh, but this is all in the eastern part of California. If you visualize California, it's kind of between... Bakersfield on the west and uh, Death Valley on the east. I see. It is open desert. So, Sandy, you find yourself in Ridgecrest for most of your life. You began as a physicist, but but that particular portion of your career at some point shifted, did it not? Yes. I became interested in archaeology and rock art Oh, in the course of a, of a career. Uh, my grandmother was very interested in anthropology. My father, who was also a physicist, was interested in archaeology, and I kind of acquired it from them. Uh, but then, of course, being right there next to Coso and the rock art field there, I think the first time I went there was probably about 1950 when I was in the second grade. It has quite an, quite an influence on you. And so as time went on, I became very interested in that. And when I retired from the uh, my career in physics, that was in 2002 after almost 40 years, I then went back to graduate school and got a master's degree in archaeological anthropology at Cal State uh, Bakersfield. Now, isn't, isn't that rather rare for someone to have a master's in physics and then twin it at a different portion of their lives and get another master's degree in archaeology? Uh, it's, it, it certainly is unusual. Uh, actually, there were a fair number of people I knew at, at the, in the Navy Department who had two master's degrees in totally unrelated fields. But this is the only one I'm aware of, which combines a, a physical science with anthropology. So you got a second degree in, in archaeology. Maybe for those that, again, may not be exceptionally familiar, we know that you lived in Ridgecrest, and we know that you were a physicist on base, and you said you had some interest in Coso rock art. Tell us, about, tell us just a thumbnail of what what Coso rock art meant to you and what it is. Okay, uh, let, before I do that, let me uh, backtrack just a little bit. But after I retired from, from the Navy Department, I always want to say graduated, but the proper term is retired. 
and got my master's in anthropology. I then worked in Ridgecrest as the archaeological curator at the Matarango Museum, which is a uh, museum of uh, archaeology and local cultural history in Ridgecrest. It's a repository for the BLM, and it's a wonderful place uh, to work like that because you have access to collections for study. Also, the Matarango Museum conducts tours of the Coso rock art. Uh, these are tours which are uh, approved by the Navy because it's on an active military range. And so the tours, though, that, that the museum conducts uh, are typically on weekends in the spring and the fall. You don't want to be up there in the Kosos either in the midsummer or midwinter. And as a tour escort, I got to see the rock art up close a great deal and became very interested in it and also became familiar with some of the questions people ask and also some of the literature associated with it. So that was kind of how the uh, connection with COSO uh, rock art came about there. The rock art itself is probably the most oh extensive collection of rock art, I would say, in the Western Hemisphere. I know there are other concentrations like the recently discovered ones in Central America, which are, are very intense. But the thing about COSO is not only is it intense, but it literally goes on for mile after mile after mile, one canyon after the next canyon, and these volcanic mountain ranges. And I don't know, I don't think anybody anybody could ever calculate it, but I would not be surprised if there were half a million images in the whole COSO rock art field. That's amazing. Absolutely remarkable. So what is it about the rock art and about your interest in physics that kind of was twinned and how, how would that have applied to, uh, you know, your, your interests and your association with the Matarango Museum? Well, one of the most uh, difficult issues in rock art, as you know, is dating the stuff, determining an age. You could, there, there have been various methods proposed for direct dating. I am skeptical of most of them. They have some validity. They're, they're after all, we're talking about a geochemical process here. And so it's not terribly accurate. One of the better methods for estimating age is by the age of associated archaeological sites, archaeological artifacts. And so from that, since uh, there's obsidian everywhere in the Great Basin and the California desert, I got interested in obsidian dating. And that was where I I really started um, applying the physics to an archaeological issue. What was it about obsidian dating in rock art that that tugged at your heart and how did that integrate in a way that provided, I'd say some revelations or some, some discoveries. How's that? Interestingly enough, um, the motivation for getting into rock to uh, obsidian hydration, the science of obsidian hydration uh, was provided by one of the professors at Cal State Bakersfield who absolutely detested obsidian hydration dating <laughs> and was convinced it would never work. And so that made me feel, okay, I'm going to show you it does. And so I have worked on that for about 16 years now and have established the, um, with, along with other co- colleagues, of course, not just all myself, the physical and chemical basis of how the hydration process works and develop the mathematical models, which allows one to compute ages and age uncertainties uh, in a, in a um, consistent uh, and reproducible manner. And so that allows one to um, estimate the age of rock art uh, by association. 
the classic case of association, of course, was Kidder and Guernsey back in the 1920s, 100 years ago, in northern Arizona, where they discovered that there was a absolute 100% correlation between basket maker rock art and location of basket maker sites. And to the extent they, they state this in one of their publications, that they used the presence of rock art to determine where the sites were. And so it does, in fact, work. You always have to be careful, of course, because you can get, get off on, on, on a false tangent there. But association with sites and association with artifacts does, in fact, work a surprising number of times. So what, what have we learned about the age of Koso rock art vis-a-vis your study of obsidian and integrating those particular disciplines and, and studies together? I think the conclusion I came to was that the, um, the classic Koso sheep, the boat-shaped body with his head turned so, so it looks like the face is looking at you, is probably relatively late, around Newberry period, probably between 2,000 and 3,000 years old. And the pattern body anthropomorphs are similar, perhaps a little bit older, maybe maybe back to 4,000, but again, mostly Newberry period. That said, however, there seems to be a fair amount of rock art there in the Kosos, which goes all the way back to Paleo-Indian periods. Uh, it's hard to nail down particular motifs associated with the very old ages, uh, except for the general appearance of being primitive and of being heavily repatinated. But I, I do think that the rock art goes all the way back to Paleo-Indian times, and that the uh, majority of it, though, is probably within the, within the last 3,000 to 1,000 years. What would you say the takeaway is from your research with obsidian studies and Koso rock art? What is some of the, I'd say the most revelatory, interesting, or insightful, something that's a, that you really want to share again with our listeners? The, well, the, well, the main thing which um, strikes me is that there is an incredible time depth to it. Uh, this is not all recent stuff. It's not a short time, but there is a huge time depth, uh, probably over 10,000 years associated with that Koso rock art. And by the way, the Koso rock art, I should comment, is almost entirely petroglyphs, carvings. There is a very small number of pictographs, paintings, uh, but they are fairly recent, apparently. And the the vast majority, you know, 99 point something percent is uh, petroglyphs. I know that you've integrated, you know, a variety of different explanatory models and perspectives on the study of Koso rock art in general. Do you have any particular sort of take on this or or particular, because as you and I are well aware, the, the Kosos has kind of been sort of a centerpiece for rock art controversy worldwide? Yes, they have. I guess the, the main thing which uh, has been striking me more recently is the, um, the difficulty of interpreting. Interpretation, in fact, from my perspective, I've just been thinking about this, interpretation actually has two aspects to it. One would be a, an intellectual aspect, a kind of an ethic aspect, and the other would be the emic kind of gut level aspect to interpretation. I think that the intellectual external interpretation, such as how does rock art fit into what we know of a culture, that is a, a, a thing which is, can be reasonably studied and I think can be beneficially studied. 
On the other hand, I think that the emic kind of gut level reaction to rock art probably can't be studied by us because we're not part of the same culture. And we, we don't know how those people perceived it or how they reacted to it uh, at, at, at a personal level. But as I say, we, we can try to understand how the rock art fits into a culture and how it fits into its um, uh, worldview. Nice. Well, I think that's going to be it for the first segment. And I guess on the next segment, we'll dig a little deeper into some of the insights and reflections on your work, both for Obsidian Dating and Coso Rock Art. See you in the flip-flop, gang. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code rockart. Spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney. Make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. Welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast on the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, and we have a remarkable gentleman, Sandy Rogers, with us. He's a, a gifted scholar, someone who's very familiar and very noted for his scientific studies of rock art, but also in the field of obsidian dating. And we're going to talk about some of the overlap and the integration of his work and how that all Parroted out vis-a-vis his uh, his life life's work and contribution to the study of rock art. Sandy, are you there? Yep, I'm right here. Sandy, it's wonderful. I, on that first segment, we uh, covered a wide range of topic. Maybe we can drill down on a specific aspect of your research. I know that you've published rather extensively on obsidian hydration dating, and how does that specifically relate to your work with COSO rock art dating and sort of uh, setting up, let's say, the, uh, the categories, the differences, or in terms of how you have come to understand the meaning, function, and uh, particular patterning on some of these rather testy questions relating to the uh, nature and antiquity of COSO rock art. Well, that's that's a big question. Of course, well, I think that the, <laughs> any question worth answering is a big one. Yeah, uh, I think that the uh, the importance of the hydration obsidian hydration dating is that it enables one very uh, in a very simple, straightforward way to um, determine ages of obsidian artifacts, which may be associated with archaeological sites and with panels, rock art sites. So it gives us at least a, uh, yeah, a possible handle on the um, ages of, uh, of the rock art by correlating, basically, let me back up, 
Right, yeah, obsidian hydration dating was was based was used extensively in the um, paperwork which recommended creation of the Coso Rock Art National Historic District. It's a good way of dating, and in many cases there was no radiocarbon or other uh, chronometric sources available, so it all you had was um, a projectile point typology and obsidian hydration dating and the, and the criti- and the critical thing is as as you would say if you can't date it you can't really talk about it very well in terms of cultural evolution or prehistoric life ways or culture change or anything well exactly you you can't you, you unless you can fit it into a a, um, a cultural sequence somewhere it's pretty hard to um, draw much in the way of conclusions about it because um, i have seen some rock art which is um very, very recent, but which is made to look like the old stuff. It's very easy to fake. And so you really need to be able to um, get a, a scientifically valid uh, estimate of, um, of age. And once you can do that, you can start to fit it into cultural sequences. Now, now COSO is rather special when it comes to obsidian, I think, because of the just the volume and the treasure of volcanic glass that's available to its Aboriginal inhabitants. Yes, I, I should have commented on that, that the, that the Coso uh, rock art area, the field, the, the historic landmark, is um, no more than five or ten miles to the east of the Coso um, volcanic field, which is one of the biggest and most prolific sources of obsidian on the West Coast, or at least in California. Uh, huge amounts of obsidian all over California came from COSO. One of the beauties of obsidian is that you can source it. Uh, there have been mathemat- laboratory techniques developed uh, using x-ray fluorescence to uh, identify the source of a piece of obsidian. And there are labs which provide this uh, service very inexpensively. So um, there was an article back in, I think, 2011 in Science uh, by John Erlinson and colleagues on uh, the Channel Islands off the coast of California, and they reported finding a piece of obsidian from the Coso Volcanic Field, specifically from West Sugarloaf Quarry on Coso Volcanic Field on Santa Rosa Island. And it was in a context they could date with radiocarbon to 11,200 years. So this uh, trade or exchange of obsidian has been going on for a very, very long time. And in fact, we find that the obsidian was traded from the Coso volcanic field, from the Coso region, uh, traded to the west, and what they received in, in return was marine shell beads. We find lots of marine shell beads in uh, archaeological sites in the eastern California desert. They All of them came from the coast of California, as a result, most likely as a result of the obsidian trade. So this, um, there's a huge amount of obsidian, and it is, it is literally all over the Coso rock art area. You can't go anywhere without stepping on the stuff. The poster child, of course, is Little Lake Ranch, which is private property. It's on the um, west side of, of the Navy base, and the, uh, there are sites there where the whole ground simply sparkles with obsidian flakes, all of which was culturally modified. So that it has been used for a very long time, which makes it a very useful item for dating. So in terms of uh, this 10,000 or more year prehistory and use of obsidian, was there uh, much change in use over that time? Or was there periods of 
peaks and valleys, or how did that sort of ferret out? Yes, there, there were definitely peaks and valleys. In the very earliest times, we're not quite sure, because most of the obsidian from that era, all you find is, is waste flakes, debitage. Um, in fact, I, I had encountered, I was doing an analysis for a guy down in San, Santa Barbara for an archaeological site, and there was obsidian there. It was just debitage, but it was Coso West Sugarloaf. And by the way, that was very, very old. That was paleo also, around 10,000 years. Uh, but those are very small pieces of debitage or uh, waste flakes. The peak area era seems to have been, again, in that Newberry period, around 04,000 down to roughly 1,500 years ago, seems to have been when the peak trade was taking place. And in that case, the uh, obsidian being traded was um, beautiful stuff, was shaped into, into bifaces and was transported then across the mountains to the east, to the west. I mean, as you know, there's the uh, Little Egg Biface Cache mm-hmm. of um, Coso Obsidian, which is curated at the Matarango Museum. There is also a, um, a cache called the um, uh, Hay Ranch Biface Cache, which is older. It's about uh, roughly 2,500 years old. And that was from Rose Valley, California. And again, it is beautifully shaped obsidian bifaces. And these were traded again toward the, toward across to the West. From what we can tell, however, uh, the trade pretty much dropped off after roughly 1,500 to 1,200 years ago. And the interpretation is that it was because the uh, that coincided with the introduction of the bow and arrow. Previous to that, the primary hunting weapon was the spear or the thrown dart, uh, thrown with an atlatl or spear thrower. And it takes a fairly large projectile point maybe two, three, four inches in length. And that in turn takes a fair amount of obsidian. And so that was probably what the um, uh, obsidian trade was supplying. After the bow and arrow was introduced, however, arrow points are very tiny. In fact, the uh, uh, desert point, desert series points, are little more than tiny slivers of, of, of volcanic glass. And you don't need great big bypasses for that. All you need is waste flakes. And so it is very likely that um, the demand for the obsidian bifaces simply went away, uh, like we see markets collapse today, when the uh, atlatl and dart were replaced by the bow and arrow. So that's quite a, quite a story of the obsidian trail. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so how does all this figure into the lifeways, religion, cosmology? You know, why are all these... Re- these pictures all over the rocks there in the Kosos. What's the deal? Well, there's a, as you know, as well as I do, there are many, many interpretations of that. Uh-huh. Um, my, uh, at last count, I count about 13 respectable interpretations, respectable in the sense that they're published in the uh, scientific literature. And there's innumerable numbers of wacko interpretations, but the strongest interpretations the most likely interpretation, I should say, uh, that I'm aware of, revolve around their function as in, as a part of society. Uh, Marcia, Marcia Dobras, I think it is, at, at uh, Berkeley, mm-hmm. has suggested that rock art, that the creation of rock art may have been as important as the product was, ah. that it may have reinforced um, social roles and social identities. Now, her argument was based on uh, Fran- France, Lascaux, and mm-hmm. Chauvet. 
uh, but it, it would occur also also for uh, COSO. And I think there's a great deal of uh, validity to that. On the other hand, I think it also has to have some function within the society. And I tend to be of the opinion that it was in, involved in some fashion with, with um, rights, shamanistic rights, religious rights involving the bighorn sheep. Bighorn sheep are overrepresented in rock art relative to the um, archaeological record. There is sheep bone in the archaeological record, but not that much. Not as many as there are images in uh, on the uh, petroglyph panels. So I suspect that the uh, the bighorn was a a, uh, a symbol of something, uh, maybe a symbol of a, of a major animal, and also it may very well be that they had been overhunted. I've seen archaeological evidence that in the Newberry period, 4,000 to about 2,000 years ago, there was a population increase in, in the California desert. We certainly see that in terms of sites in the Coso uh, uplands on the Navy base. And so um, if there was a population increase, uh, it's entirely possible that the um, sheep were being overhunted. From what I understand, bighorn sheep do not reproduce terribly well. And so it does not take very much to overhunt them. They're also not especially bright. And so uh, an expanded population armed with uh, atlatls and darts, and then subsequently, of course, armed with a bow and arrow, which is even more lethal, uh, could very easily have overhunted the sheep. And we know also from, from cross-cultural studies that the typical response to overhunting was uh, religious Certainly in the Pacific Northwest, they, uh, they returned bones of the um, salmon to the river so that the, so the salmon would come back. And I suspect that in this case, in, in the Kosos, uh, they were creating images of sheep to um, encourage the, uh, the reappearance of sheep. So it sounds like to me that uh, we had a, a very lively society and one that endured and one that was rather religious and one that uh, depicted uh, what what mattered to them, certainly adorning the rocks, and uh, it was a um, a very abundant means of representing their theology. Am I correct? That would be my interpretation. Yeah, interesting. And, and certainly, we know that the life way of those people was quite successful. Um, now, I could not have done it. I can't survive without a convenience store, but for them, the uh, desert was their convenience store. And they they moved around, seasonal transhumans, with the seasons, and they were a very successful um, cultural adaptation for thousands of years, a lot longer than we've been here. Remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. Well, thank you. Well, that's going to be the finish up of our second segment, gang, and uh, we're going to close out the next segment with uh, some final reflections from Sandy Rogers about uh, some of his latest discoveries and revelations. See you on the flip-flop. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Gang, welcome back to your Rock Art Podcast with uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. We're here at the Archaeology 
Podcast Network. And we're going to close out with the third segment with our remarkable guest scholar, Sandy Rogers. Sandy. Yes, indeed. You've shared some tremendously interesting insights and wisdom. How would you like to uh, close out our episode with some of your latest discovery, revelations, perhaps, that uh, you feel are relevant to our understanding of the uh, ancients of the coastal range? Okay. Um, over the last, um, oh, maybe three years, I've become more interested in the um, interrelated question of um, uh, linguistics and, and genetics in, in this area. We all remember what um, Franz Boas said many years ago, that you have to look on three different dimensions in anthropology of culture and linguistics, he called it uh, language, and genetics, which he called race. But uh, culture, uh, linguistics, and genetics are three interrelated topics, but they're not identical. And you uh, confuse them at your peril. And unfortunately, of course, in archaeology, all we get to deal with is material culture for the most part, because that's all it preserves in the archaeological record. And so that, by the way, is one of the reasons why rock art is so valuable, because it gives us at least possibly an insight into ideology in addition to the, uh, the material culture, but you have to be real, real careful about that. But recently there's been some interesting material discovered, and I'll start with the genetics. Back in 2018, I believe it was, in science, uh, there was an, a paper published by the uh, S.K. Willersleff ancient DNA team at the University of Copenhagen. It was in about October or November of that year. And I remember because I was at the Great Basin Anthropological Conference, and that, um, that paper was all the talk of, in the hallways. It had just come out. And what these, uh, these folks at Copenhagen has, has succeeded in doing was they, they did DNA studies on three uh, individual cases. Uh, one was the present-day Paiute of the, uh, I believe it was the Fallon Band Paiute in Nevada. The second was the Lovelock Cave Human Remains from Nevada, which dated to about roughly 1,400 years ago. The third one was the Spirit Cave Human Remains, again from Nevada, which were about 14,000 years. And what they were able to demonstrate, to everyone's surprise, was genetic continuity over that whole period, from Spirit Cave to Lovelock Cave to the present day. Now, that is a long period of time for a genetic continuity. And my suspicion is, although this is, um, of course, in uh, western Nevada, my suspicion is that a similar genetic time depth would exist uh, in the Coso region. We know that the, the, the peoples were very related and so I would be very much surprised we didn't have that similar time depth. We just don't have any particular way of, of, of verifying it. Then from the point of view of, of linguistics, there's been a theory for a long time, going all the way back to Kay Fowler back in 1986 or so, that the um, ancestors of the present day inhabitants of um, the Eastern California desert were in that area about 6,000 years ago, or these people who spoke that language proto-northern Utah-Aztecan were there 6,000 years ago. She based her argument on, on linguistics and on words which occur in the present-day 
language which uh, seemed to uh, reflect the, the, that arena, that area. Since then, of course, uh, David Shaw and various colleagues have argued for a time depth back to more like 10,000 uh, in that area. So again, we, what we have here is a very interesting confluence uh, between apparently uh, linguistics and uh, genetics in this Eastern California area. And so I would, or I would suggest that this would, this would indicate to me at least that for the, for the Coso rock art, that we know there were people there 13,000 years ago because they made the uh, Paleo-Indian artifacts we find. We find Clophis points, we find Western stem tradition points, we find crescents, all these things which are Paleo-Indian in age. So we know people were there. We now have reasonably good evidence, at least circumstantial. There were folks there who spoke at least a proto-Utah-Aztecan language between 6,000 and 10,000 years ago, and they may very well go back before then. Then finally, we have this genetic continuity, which admittedly is in Western Nevada, but that's very similar to Eastern California. There was no state line in those days. And so that, again, that goes back 10,000 years, and there may be greater time depth than that. So what all that would suggest to me is that for the origination of the Coso rock art, the rock art there was probably created by people who were the genetic and probably linguistic forebears of the present-day Native American populations. Now, I realize that's a big statement to make, but I've kind of I've painted myself into a corner on that, but I think this is valid. Um, and so the, the time depth, again, is, is very, very long, and it actually extends up to the present, I think. Now, the, the ethnographic present there uh, was the uh, Koso or Panamint Shoshone, and the present-day Timbishaw are their uh, descendants. So I am I'm really of the opinion that the, the rock art there in that area, at least the petroglyphs, uh, was created by people who are uh, the ancestors of the present-day Native American inhabitants of the area. Pretty amazing stuff. Really amazing. When you think about it in, in a broad way, that would mean that sort of the uh, Great Basin Paiute Shoshone, the folks we call Numic, have distant relationships with the Hopi, who are yes. Uto-Aztecan in the American Southwest, and then even connections to northern Mexico, the Huichol and the Aztec. Yes, they do. And there was there was a study done by uh, Christy Turner uh, back about, Oh, 1997 or thereabouts of uh, teeth, and what he did was he looked at the um, the dentition. I don't remember. It was like like a, a thousand or twelve hundred teeth he examined, mm-hmm. which must have been a heck of a task uh, from all over the Southwest and also from Northwest Mexico. And what he concluded was that the people of the, in the Southwest whom we would call Western basket maker, uh, who, by the way, were probably Uto-Aztecan, shared dentition with um, Northwest Mexico. Oh, my word. So, and it's a very interesting set of conclusions he came to. So again, this, is, this shows the tremendous continuity, genetic, cultural, linguistic continuity, spanning enormous lengths of, of space and geography and environmental heterogeneity to some extent. Correct. Yes, and, 
there, there is another kind of a wild card here that I'll mention. I hope this doesn't, doesn't fall in the wacko category. But some years ago, I was um, interested in, I got interested in the, uh, in the subject of, of a disease called valley fever, coccidia otomycosis, San Joaquin Valley fever. Turns out that the um, uh, Mayo Clinic is the um, experts on this, and all those called San Joaquin Valley fever is actually more in Arizona and in New Mexico than it is in California. There was a map published by the Mayo Clinic, and I happened to look at a copy of it. I was shown it by an MD, as a matter of fact, and I, I fell over because the map of that epidemic, uh, it, it's not an epidemic, it's the endemic disease, a map of the hotspots of valley fever looks almost exactly like a map of the, of the uh, Utah-Aztecan expansion. And if you overlay a map of the uh, areas where valley fever is, in, is endemic, uh, it overlaps beautifully with um, the areas where, where Utah-Aztecan languages were spoken. It, what, 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 ba- what basis would that have in terms of understanding sort of um, genetics and also epidemiology? Is there something that would make that a sensible association or no? Well, it, 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 it appears that the coccidioidomycosis originated in tropical Mexico. Okay. And it originated in basically the same area that the Utah-Aztecan languages originated. And it looks like it might be an indicator of um, migration patterns. But again, I don't want to push this too far because it's, it's a very tentative sort of examination but it was kind of interesting, at least. So, what's the late? What's the for the? I guess the last little bit of time that we have. Where are you taking your research at this point? What particular uh, topics and subjects are you working on? Because I'm sure you have some other articles and projects in the can. Well, as a matter of fact, um, <laughs> I I have put my most of my rock art work on the back burner now. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, I probably will get back to it, but at the moment, since I'm in, in Oregon and no longer have easy access to the rock art there in California, mm-hmm. I've been focusing more on uh, obsidian hydration dating and also on uh, some research with um, Robert Yoey at Cal State Bakersfield on uh, trying to lay out the prehistoric occupation sequence in Rose Valley, California. Hmm. And we have we have pretty good data to go from there, and we're in the process of uh, of putting this together. So that's kind of where that where it's going now. That plus, as I say, with obsidian dating, I'm working with um, uh, Chris Stevenson at the University of Virginia on uh, obsidian science, and we have in fact we have a paper coming well, a book chapter coming out shortly, uh, in which we managed to uh, we think finally. Uh, get valid hydration rates for Bodie Hills Obsidian. <laughs> well, you know, I don't think you're stopping uh, anytime too soon. Sounds like you have many different ambitious projects that are at your uh, fingertips. And uh, God bless you for your energy and your intellect and your enthusiasm, Sandy. You've been a thank you virtually a lifelong friend, and I'm uh, just honored to know you and to uh, share your joy and enthusiasm for our cherished profession. Thank you very much. Well, that's it, boys and girls, for the 45th Rock Art Podcast. See you next week in a brand new show.
See you on the flip-flop. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rockart. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So.